Good to Matthew chapter 21. And this Sunday is traditionally what is called Palm Sunday. And no, we're not giving out palm leaves today. Uh, not that we're necessarily against that, but some people believe that uh, because they've received a palm leaf that they have worshipped the Lord. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, true worship to God is not just showing up at church. Now, we do want you to show up. Amen. Uh, we do enjoy that when people are here and uh, together we can sing our songs and raise our voices in worship to God. It's a whole lot better when we have a full house than when we have an empty one. Amen. And But if each of us do not make that individual choice to truly worship the Lord from our hearts, then that part of it is not acceptable to the Lord of heaven. And I hope that you have enjoyed the music this morning. I surely have. I always enjoy hearing that song. And, uh, of course, I enjoy hearing Leland sing, not only because he's my son-in-law, but he just does a wonderful job. Amen. And uh, our ladies have worked hard. And, you know, what that song is about, and I'll be touching on it in the sermon this morning, is the single, I believe, the single most... uh, incredible uh, act of worship recorded in the Scriptures. There were many things done where Jesus was glorified, and we'll be talking about those today as we talk about the triumphal entry. People worshipped Him. They filled the temple with hosannas and uh, to the Son of David. But Jesus didn't say, I am going to let this be a testimony, but He did say that, Wherever the gospel is preached, the story of what Mary did, we believe Saturday night, the night before Jesus rode the donkey through the eastern gate of Jerusalem, he said that's going to be spoken of as a memorial of her. And so, as we look at these events, uh, I, I literally have preached many, many, many sermons on the triumphal entry, and I looked through some of those. And, and, and this morning, what I would like us to do, and, and for lack of a, of a better term, is I want to look at the players in the game, the, the different actors, the, the people and the roles that were played out as this story unfolded. And no, we're not talking about just a... Uh, this was not uh, orchestrated. This was uh, real events that unfolded in real history of real fulfillment of God's prophecies. Everything happened just the way the Bible tells us. And so what I'd like for us to do is start out in Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to read some verses here. Uh, all the way down through verse 17, and I hope you don't mind, we're going to have to move around. We just finished on Sunday nights a harmony of the Gospels, and so we understand that different Gospel records give us different details uh, of the story of Jesus Christ, and we're going to do our best to fill those in. We won't be able to turn to every reference. Some of them will only be spoken of, but... uh, the, uh, let's just start reading here. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage 
unto the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. Now, I want to remind you, Matthew is the only one that includes the uh, not only the donkey on which Jesus rode, the, the foal, the she-donkey, but also her colt, the baby donkey, was with him. And, and Jesus used these two animals, his feet upon the baby donkey and sat upon the, uh, the mama donkey there, and they made a moving throne down the Mount of Olives, the descent into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. That's why in your Bible, if you ever leave Jerusalem, you're always going down. But uh, those that have been there, the, the tour guides, they love to bring you right up to this very point. The Mount of Olives. It's a little crest. It's a, a higher part of the ridge on which Jerusalem is built. And the entire city lays out in a panorama before you. Now, Jesus' day was much different than our day. The predominating architecture, as you stand there on the Mount of Olives, is uh, the Dome of the Rock, an Islamic mosque that has been built on the Temple Mount. But I want to challenge you, in Jesus' day, there stood the second temple, Herod's Temple, as it was called. It began building... Years before Jesus was born and continued in its building until 67 A.D. until only just a few years before the Roman armies destroyed it in 70 A.D. It was known as one of the wonders of the ancient world and people would travel. Uh, not only Jewish people, but people would travel from all over the world to stand there on the top of the Mount of Olives and behold the temple that was there. It was a great complex. Uh, even just one of the porches or the, uh, the gathering areas of the temple, we find 5,000 people, get 5,000 men, I'm sorry, getting saved in the book of Acts in chapter 5. Uh, 4 and 5 tells us that story. So this was not just uh, a little portico or a little thing. This was a huge complex, tens of thousands of people could gather there in the temple. And so uh, Jesus sends them, and verse 3 says, If any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass, and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? What a question. Who is this? 
And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethlehem, and he lodged there. So, the first group of people that I would like to talk about, the first uh, actors in this drama of human life, is the Jewish people. You see, as the Feast of Passover, the great feast even today uh, among the Jewish community, those that observe the, uh, the laws of God, the Old Testament at all, Passover is the special day. This building was built as a synagogue in 1935. Uh, it saw its highest attendance in the years shortly after World War II, but by 1959, the attendance was dwindling and they shortened the auditorium. 1994, they closed. They no longer had the quorum that they needed to keep the synagogue open. It was a big building for just a few people to meet in. And the Lord allowed us to purchase the building in 1997. And we praise the Lord for all the miracles, and we won't take time to go through that today. But Passover was the biggest event of the year. If you were observant, no matter where you lived, you planned your schedule. And as a Jewish man, you would bring your family to Jerusalem for the Passover. You could not celebrate Passover wherever you were. It was to be celebrated at the temple. The only way that you could have the sacrifice for which to take your meal, the Passover dinner, was to present that lamb at the temple and, and uh, have the priest uh, perform the rituals that were there, and then they would give you the lamb as part of it would be burnt on the altar. Uh, those that claim to know claim that uh, as the blood of those lambs was poured out on the pavement of the temple, that it would seep through the stones and literally paint the side of the mountain red on which was Jerusalem was built. People have said, well, the Bible is a bloody book and it's a bloody religion. Yes, it is. There's no denying that. But God wants us to understand how horrible our sins are. We don't get it. We really don't. We, we think the best of ourselves and the worst of everybody else. Do we not? Is that not human nature? 
But God wants us to look at ourselves realistically and understand who and what we are and how offensive we are to a holy God. I don't want to spend too much time here, but there are a lot of people that try to present this event as some special event that if the Jewish people had only received Jesus as their king, that all time would have ended and Jesus would have ascended the throne that somehow it was the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people that brought about the crucifixion. And I want to challenge you, that is nothing less than human reasoning. That's not Bible. How in the world could you say that this reception of Jesus was not an acceptation of him as their king? In fact, it would be Pilate that would say just a few days later when Jesus was crucified, He had said, shall I crucify your king? Pilate understood who Jesus was proclaiming himself to be. He did not have to enter the temple and see the things. He had his spies all through the city. He was keeping track of what was going on. He knew that there had never been a man like this in Jewish history before. And he understood who Jesus was. The Jewish people worshipped him with worship that belongs only to the Messiah. They cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. That is worship that belongs only to God. And I want you to understand the Jewish people in this day, as in the days of Jesus, as in the days of Moses and Mount Sinai, they understood one thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. They were not afraid. They, they understood that Jesus was claiming to be Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And they worshipped him as such. In fact, one of the other Gospels tells us that they went to Jesus and said, Tell your disciples to be quiet. You're not the Messiah. And Jesus said, If... If these should hold their peace, how many of you remember what the Bible says? Even the stones would cry out. So I want you to understand that the people worshipped him as a king. They took their garments off and laid them in the road and cut down the palm branches, hence the term Palm Sunday. And the reason for this was the road was dusty, the road was dirt. And when you walked on the road, you got dirty. And by the way, can, do I have to elaborate on this? It wasn't only dirt on the road. There were horses and mules and all kinds of animals. And so this wasn't even clean dirt. This was, this was nasty stuff. And in order to honor and worship him as his position, they literally paved the street with garments and palm leaves so that there would not be any dust raised from the street as Jesus entered Jerusalem. No homage as such had ever been paid to the Romans when they entered Jerusalem. No king had ever received such a testimony as Jesus did on what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Islam 
understood the prophecies of the Bible enough that when they took over the city in the medieval times after 600, that they went out and they took this eastern gate and they sealed it shut. And then they put a cemetery in front of it. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of graves there in front of this eastern gate. And they said, there, we'll make sure that when Messiah comes through that gate, he'll be able to prove who he is because he'll have to remove the cemetery and he'll have to open this sealed gate. The only problem was they were several centuries too late. He's already been there. When he comes the next time, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. And the entire geography of the land of Israel is going to be changed to conform to what the Bible tells us will be during the millennial reign of Christ. And we touched on that in Sunday school. But I want to challenge you. Matthew 27, verse 20 says, But the chief priest and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. See, the problem with the crowd is things change. How many of you have heard the phrase, don't follow the crowd? People say, well, everybody's doing it. Number one, that's a lie. Everybody is, cannot possibly do, be doing the same thing at the same time. It's, that's just not possible. But people have always used that as an excuse. And, and many teenagers say, well, well listen, uh, you know, uh, I, I have my friends and I want to be a part of my peers. And they call it peer pressure. Even the psychologists have to admit that the greatest pressure upon young people today in a home where mom and dad live there is still their parents, not their peers. I want to challenge you parents, be involved in your children's lives. You have a place, you have a voice. Exercise it. Don't turn your kids over to their friends. There's nothing more foolish than that. And this story proves how foolish it is to follow the crowd. They were willing to receive Jesus. They were willing to be healed by them. They were willing to to see him. And just a few days later, they would join with the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees and ask for Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, to be released to them and ask Pilate to destroy Jesus. Well, we've already touched on the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And again, I just want to remind you that when you see the word Jews in your Bible, capital J-E-W-S, that is referring to the priest. They were the Sadducees. The scribes, the Pharisees, these were the other religious leaders of the Jewish people. You have to remember, all the disciples were Jews, all the multitude was Jews, everybody but the Romans and a few distinct other people uh, were all Jewish people. So, uh, 
Again, people like to use this in, in, as a basis for anti-Semitism, for hating the Jews, saying, see, the Jews rejected Jesus, and, and therefore they're no longer a people. You hear that. I want you to understand something. You're talking to someone who does not believe the Bible. You move out of those circles. You don't listen to... The world is full. Neo-Nazism is coming back with a vengeance. And I'll tell you, that has no place in the life of any person that believes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jewish in his human heritage. And he, as the God-man, stands that we may worship him. And I'll tell you, we've got a lot going on in politics today. And uh, just don't fall for this foolishness that's going on in the House of Representatives today. Don't, don't fall for that. Someone who hates the Jewish people has no part in this book called the Bible. But no one hated Jesus more than the Jews, the religious leaders. And here's why. They believed that the temple belonged to them. The scribes believed about themselves that they were the holders of God's law. You see, that nothing has changed. We have many religious leaders out there today. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has changed its doctrines on many places. In fact, it wasn't until 1850-something, I don't remember the exact date, that Finally, the Pope in, in uh, Rome recognized that when he speaks uh, in the voice of God, the, the Latin is ex cathedra, that he speaks without error and he has the right to change the Bible. Now that's, uh, I don't know what you would say. Uh, the only word that comes to mind is arrogant, self-serving. How foolish can you be? When you take upon yourself the authority to change this book. Uh, but let me tell you something. What does Islam say? Oh, we believe the Bible, but the New Testament is full of errors. Uh, I'll tell you what, there's more manuscript evidence and more proof for every word in this New Testament than there is for any word in the Quran. This book is provable. This book is verifiable. Anyone who is willing to believe God can understand these are God's words. The same lies that were going on. If you remember, after Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, some of them believed not. They went their way to the chief priest. And from that moment, they began planning the death of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 14 tells us, after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, No, not on the feast, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Just a few verses down in Mark chapter 14, after Mary had anointed Jesus' head and his feet with that ointment, and been rebuked by Jesus for saying that the, the ointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. 
And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. You see, I want you to understand something about these chief priests. Number one, they were upset about Jesus receiving praise and worship from the people. Because they knew what that meant. Because if people worshipped Jesus, they weren't going to listen to them anymore. They were plotting and planning. But then they enlisted the help of a traitor. You know, there is nothing more despicable in human history than a traitor, is there not? The communists, as they plotted and planned their overthrow of of Russia and then Eastern Europe after World War II and all of they they extensively used the behavior, uh, the uh, services of traitors to betray the people and to subjugate them to the boot of communism. But let me tell you, the communists were smart enough to do one thing: once they employed a traitor, they executed them. Once they had control. Because they knew that if they would betray their own people, it wouldn't be long before they'd betray the communists. Now, if the communists are that smart, how come the chief priests were that foolish? Because when you want to do something bad enough that you don't care about anything else, you will... You will do anything. When you refuse to believe in the truth of this Bible, you will believe anything. Can I give you one example? How about all the people that followed Sung Young Moon? I mean, you talk about dumber than a box of rocks. This guy can't even do his own taxes. And yet, he was the one Jesus sent to straighten out all the world. And fix the mess that Jesus fixed. I mean, that was his own words. Well, I refused to do it until Jesus appeared the third time and told me that he needed me to straighten out the mess that he had made. Utter blasphemy. But I'll tell you, there's worse than that. How about Mr. Applewith? Does anybody remember him? The purple bandanas and the plastic bags? as I believe 27 people committed suicide on the same day so that they could be beamed up to the mothership who was tailing the hale bob Comet. I mean, we can get ridiculous, Jim Jones. I wonder how many of those people willingly drank the Kool-Aid versus the number of people who did so at gunpoint. And we know that happened. There is so much foolishness in this world. To enlist the services of a traitor betrays the integrity of anything that you do. And yet this was the chief priest. These were the people who were responsible for offering the sacrifices in the temple. And they would later... Uh, come the fall of this year, it would be the same people that would, the same high priest that condemned Jesus would put his hand on the sacrificial lamb 
or, or goat that would be offered on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled the blood on the marble slab in the most holy place because there was no te- uh, Ark of the Covenant in Herod's temple. It was just an empty marble slab stuck in the room there. How about the Romans? You know, if there's anybody I feel sorry for in this whole story, it's the Romans. Here they were. They were not Jewish people. They were watching all of these things. And yet, Jesus couldn't be crucified unless Pilate gave the edict because he was the Roman governor. And crucifixion was a Roman form of capital punishment. The Jewish people could not crucify anyone. What was Pilate's question when Jesus stood before him? What is truth? What did Jesus said to the disciples? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I mean, imagine Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He's got one job. To keep peace in the city of Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. To stop an uprising. They played him like a fine fiddle and he could do nothing but hum their tune. Because when they came up and they said, He claims to be a king and we have no king but Caesar. If you're a friend to this man, you're an enemy of Caesar. Pilate said, I'm I'm done. And he called for water and he washed his hands. He says, I want you to know I find no fault in him at all. He said, you take him and you crucify him. But they couldn't do it unless Pilate gave the sentence. I love the testimony of the Roman centurion standing at the cross. Do you not? How many of you are familiar with that? When he saw all the things that happened as Jesus cried and gave up the ghost, and John tells us that that great cry that Jesus cried was not this languishing wisp of the life leaving him, but a cry of victory saying, It is finished! And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said, Surely, this must be the Son of God. And you know what I love? The fact that just a few hundred years later, it was the Caesar of Rome who would claim, I don't believe he ever made it, honestly and truly, who would claim Christianity so that he could rally a bigger population of his empire behind him to make him Caesar than the pagan Caesar who was actually reigning in Rome at the time in Constantine won the victory and became the first Christian emperor. Not because he believed in Christ, but because he was a politician and he needed the backing of the most people that he could get. You see, that same Christ that was crucified here on the cross had conquered the Roman Empire. Not through war, but through the salvation of souls. One at a time, and Christianity had grown to the point to where it was the predominant religion of the once pagan Roman Empire. Isn't that an amazing story? But it's true. 
How about the soldiers at the tomb? Matthew 28 says that they went to the Pharisee chief priest, told them that this guy had floated down out of the sky, rolled the tomb away, the stone away, and they took the money and did as they were taught. That the disciples had come and stolen the body while they slept. And if someone reported that to Pontius Pilate, he called them in for discipline. Those same chief priests were back there in Pilate's ear saying, leave these guys alone. If you stir this thing up, it's going to be a bigger mess than you ever could make. Because they're going to tell that this guy rose from the dead. And if he did, we lose everything. And Pilate, once again, hummed their tomb and just sat still and let things go on. I have a Jewish history book that was left here by the synagogue. And you know what it says? That while the Roman guards slept, the, the disciples came and stole the body. Just like the Bible says. Now, how in the world could the disciples steal the body? Let's go to John chapter 12. We're going to look at a few passages here and try to not be too tedious. But the next group is the disciples. John chapter 12, in verse 16, it says, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. John is giving testimony here that there was no collusion. Boy, that's a word people like to use today, is it not? Uh, there wasn't anything storytelling going on here with the disciples. They didn't even understand as they went and got the donkey and, and her colt and brought them to Jesus and put him on the donkey and the colt as they took their garments and lined the highway, and they saw the multitude coming together, they didn't even remember the prophecies in Zechariah in other parts of the Bible. It wasn't until after Jesus was glorified and He opened their eyes and quoted to them all the Scriptures in the context of the person of Jesus Christ that the disciples even understood what was really happening. Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 24. The night Jesus was betrayed, what did he, he told the disciples, he said, one of you is going to betray me. Do you remember what the response was from the disciples? Is it I? Am I going to do it? I mean, these guys were honestly the most witless men in this whole scenario here, they should have known the most, should they not? How many times had Jesus told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again the third day. The Pharisees understood that enough to go to Herod and get a Roman guard after Jesus had been crucified. They knew what Jesus said. The disciples, they, they're just sitting there, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they didn't know what was going on. Isn't that sad? 
But can I skip ahead in the sermon and just put one little application and then we'll get back to the story. If the disciples were this bad off and yet they were great servants of Christ, is there not hope for you and I? Amen? Now, just keep that in your mind as we finish here, but let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And as they thus spake, these were the two that Jesus appeared to on the road to Emmaus. He'd come back and told them that they had seen Jesus. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled and why do your do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands. And my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wonder, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. I want you to understand one thing about the disciples. After Judas was removed from their number by committing suicide and betraying the Lord, Betraying the Lord and then committing suicide, of course. Not one of those apostles that were left ever turned from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as we understand in history, all of them died violent deaths except John, who was exiled on the island Patmos. They have stories that he was dipped in boiling oil and couldn't die, and so they put him on the island. I don't know how true those things are, and it really doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is, we have no record anywhere in all of history that these men, who were so clueless as to what was going on, and so frightened when they saw the resurrected Lord the first time, they became the boldest and the greatest preachers of all history. No succeeding generation has been as successful in getting the gospel out to the world in which they lived as were those 11 men who were assembled in this upper room and witnessed with their own eyes the resurrected Lord. But you know, you and I have a far greater witness than actually seeing the Lord with our eyes, do we not? We have this entire book of the Bible that gives us the history of mankind from creation until eternity future. We have every bit of revelation that God needs us to have. 
Don't go looking for hidden messages. When you haven't been obedient with what you have. Amen? Now we have one more person that we want to touch on very lightly here. Well, actually not very lightly. Uh, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 2 there, they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Let's take a moment and just go to Mark chapter 14 if we could. And the wording in Mark is a little difficult here, but... If we will understand this correctly, he is giving us a, a uh, flashback look in verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. You see, the single greatest act of worship in the Bible... Excuse me. It's recorded here. I wish we had time to spend the whole time here this morning. But we have no record where Mary was during the triumphal entry. Chances are she was part of the multitude that went into Jerusalem. They lived close enough to Jerusalem that they would be able to retire back to their home during the Passover and actually live at home during the Passover feast. They would, of course, Lazarus would have gone to the temple on the day of Passover to uh, receive the sacrificial lamb that they would then cook at their home. But of all the people that we've talked about today, the only one that really understood what was going on was Mary. If you're still there in Mark, chapter 14, verse 6, it says, And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and Whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. What a testimony. Do you realize the next morning as Jesus would have ridden that donkey into Jerusalem that as he came 
close to where you and I would have been standing if we were part of that group, we would have still been overwhelmed with the smell of the spikenard from the night before. It, it was an incredible perfume. It, it was used primarily at the burying of a person. Uh, the historians tell us that even a teaspoon or two would have been enough for the burial of a great man. Uh, uh, and yet, Mary took what would have been uh, an entire funeral, many times over what was needed for one burying, and poured it on Jesus all at one time. Do you realize what that would have done to the meal that they were partaking of? You couldn't taste the food after Mary had performed this act of worship. Nothing was in the mind or understanding of anybody there but the smell of the spikenard. I'm a person that's greatly affected by strong smells. In fact, if you shake my hand before the service and you have strong cologne on, I'll probably run upstairs and try to wash that off so that I can keep breathing during the preaching time. It just, uh, my system does not handle those things well. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm glad I wasn't here in this story. I wouldn't have been able to breathe the whole time. Uh, I'd just been in my handkerchief. But the simple truth of the matter is, When they beat Jesus before they crucified, the smell would have still been there and it would have come off on their hands as they pulled his beard out and as they beat him and and buffeted him. And by the time they were done, Jesus didn't even look human. That's what Isaiah 53 tells us. All of these things happened. From Saturday night till the following Sunday when Jesus came out of the grave. Now, just a few moments of reflection here because the stories in the Bible are real. They're real so that we can look at how people live their faith with God and order our lives accordingly. Now, I would hope and pray and trust that there would not be one soul here today that would be as the religious leaders were, that they would be trusting so much in their religion and their own understanding of the Word of God that that they couldn't see the truth if you beat them over the head with it. Now, we've had people come through our, our church like that and... I remember one man in particular, he said, Preacher, you're a pretty good preacher, but you know, I got the books of this guy, and he was in Africa, and he healed uh, people, and they took pictures of him in the 1940s, and he had a halo of fire over his head, and that was before they could do any of these things to pictures, and I'm sitting there, you've got to be kidding me. He said, I'll bring you the book, and I'll show it to you. And I said, I don't, I don't want to see his book. The guy's a fakester, fraud, he's a phony. He said, well, how do you get the halo of fire? I said, they have been touching up photographs ever since there were photographs to touch up. Uh, Sometimes we have photographs left over from the Civil War where uh, the man had exposed the glass plate 
with one picture and then had left it in the camera by mistake and double exposed the plate. And people find, oh, there's ghosts. No, there's just a dumb photographer or a careless one anyway. Uh, I mean, you can, listen, we as Baptists, we believe that you have the right to believe whatever you choose to believe. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion is a Baptist distinctive. No other religion can claim that. It's one of the reasons I'm a Baptist preacher. I didn't grow up Baptist. And yes, there's an awful lot of Baptists that don't believe anything. But that's the salvation isn't in Baptist. Salvation is in the Bible. But the history of the people who believe this Bible is in the name Baptist. And so we use it and we embrace it. I would hope and pray that we don't have anyone here that's just moving with the crowd. But yet Jesus said, broad is the way. You ever wonder why every town in the United States of America has a broad way? Well, if you understood the history, you'd understand that there was one road in town that was wider than the rest, and it was called the Broadway. Uh, excuse me, man has ever been at odds with God. And man has ever believed that his Broadway is the right way. But I'll tell you what, this book tells me that Jesus is the only way. If you stay with the crowd, I promise you, you will be moved. One quick illustration. Back in the 1940s and early 50s, after World War II, there was a euphoria in the United States because the war had been won. And and it was a time of great growth among people believing in God and in Christianity. And, And there were several different movements that came to prominence and Uh, They called them collectively the holiness people. These were the apostolic Pentecostal, were the most radical of them, and then the Nazarenes, the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, were different denominations that early part of the Assembly of God that made up this holiness movement. In fact, there were churches, and I believe there still are today, where if you walked into the church, I'm wearing a gold wedding band and a watch, and I even have my grandpa's cufflinks on. And if I walked into church, they would make me take those things off, put it in my pocket, or they wouldn't let me in church because I would be uh, presuming a proud and worldly attitude. Serious. Ladies, if you didn't come properly dressed, they actually had a rack of clothes there and they would ask you to go put something else on before they let you in the building. Those very same people today were the first ones that introduced rock concerts into their Christianity, gave up on their dress standards. You see, they were just part of the group. It was a fad. It changed. I knew a preacher that preached against wire-frame glasses. You say, that's crazy. Well, can I ask you a question? In the 1960s, if you wanted to look like John Lennon, wasn't there something wrong with you? 
Hello? Yes? Do you agree with me on that one? But was that the answer to preach against wireframe glasses? No! It's just being part of the crowd or trying to be part of the anti-crowd. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to follow Jesus. No one, nothing else. Maybe there's some like the disciples just have no clue as to what all this religious stuff is about. All right? I got something for you. There's a cure. Ta-da! That's why we preach out of this book every service. That's why we spend our time in our through the Bible uh, in our uh, earlier service. We go through the Bible one story at a time. Today, we finish the Bible, our ninth journey through the Bible. Guess what? In two weeks, we're starting journey number 10. Amen? Uh, we, we are going to keep with it. We are going to follow through the Bible until Jesus comes back because we never know enough. We can always learn more. You see, the disciples, even though they didn't know what was going on until it was all done, when they finally understood, they served the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we not ask God to give us a spirit of worship like Mary had? That we could understand You see, there's no excuse for us not understanding. Because we have all the disciples' testimonies. We have the finished product of God's revelation. There's nothing new coming. Anybody claims that they got a new message from God, got it from a different God than the book of this Bible. We ought to say amen to that. This is all we're going to get from God. We do not have an excuse for not understanding. We've got to spend time with this book. But that song that the, they sang before the sermon, right here from the Scriptures, she hath done what she could. When you stand before God, would that not be one of the greatest testimonies God could give about your service for Him? I heard a preacher preach a sermon one time that God's going to have a room in heaven where He's going to show you all the blessings that He wanted to give you, but He couldn't because you weren't in the place where He could bless you. Now, that makes great preaching, but that's really not in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then it's not really great preaching, is it? It's just what we call emotionalism. But I will tell you this, that when we stand before God and He begins to review our lives, we will be so greatly filled with remorse and conviction of what we could have done and didn't that we won't need God to show us anything. Christianity is real, my friend. Jesus is truly the Messiah, the chosen one, 
God with us. The only truth, the only way, the only life is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone says, you're awful narrow-minded. Well, it was Jesus that said, strive ye to enter into the straight gate. For straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And some of the saddest words in all the Bible. And few there be that find it. Today, have you found that straight way? Have you entered the narrow gate? The straight gate? Are you walking in that narrow way? I'm glad that in August 20, on August 28th of 1977, the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. And He never gave up on me. There's been times I've been like the disciples. Witless, clueless, dumb. But Jesus still loved me. And He let me be a preacher. We've all been there. And we can serve Him together in His body, which is the local assembly of believers. But you know what? You can't be a member of this church unless you ask to be. You've got to make that public profession. You've got to be saved the Bible way, baptized the Bible way. And the Bible says, being willing to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what church is about. Praise God. Jesus rode that donkey through the eastern gate. The crowds worshipped him and then cried for his blood. The Pharisees were angry at the praise that was coming to Jesus because they wanted it for themselves. The Romans were trying to make sense of the whole thing. The disciples didn't know what was going on. One woman, the night before Jesus rode that donkey, anointed him. He said, for my bearing, but as a king. For not only a king would receive such a burial present as Mary gave Jesus. And yet she was there before he died. Before he suffered. And her act of worship stands alone in the Bible without peer. Without anything comparable to it. Because she did what she could. And all God's people say, let's